2: In this week's episode of Business Weekly, we're featuring an episode of the No Bullshit Leadership podcast, in which Chris Hurst, global CEO of Havas Creative and host of the podcast, cuts through the bullshit and gets to the heart of modern leadership with business leaders and innovators. This episode features Kwame Kwearma, the artistic director of the Young Vic Theatre in London, and he speaks about leadership and diversity in the arts. We thought this episode would be particularly pertinent and interesting, as it is Black History Month in the United Kingdom, and we hope you enjoy it.
1: Hi, Chris. Hi, Farah. So today we've got Kwame Kweama, the artistic director of The Young Vic, one of the UK's leading theatres. And in that spirit, our quick fire round is going to be around the world of theatre, arts and performance. Are you ready?
2: Great. Let's go for it.
1: Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth? I
2: think Macbeth, first of all, it's not too long. Which I think is quite a <laughs> just showing off my artistic credentials there. No, I I think Macbeth, um, actually not too long before lockdown, I went to see Macbeth at the Barbican and it was just absolutely incredible.
1: I love the fact that you prioritised performance time over plot.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, let's just uh, keep it real.
1: Well, let's go to musicals. I don't know if you're a musical fan, but if you are Hamilton or Les Mis
2: I could say categorically, uh, without hesitation, that I'm not a musicals fan. I resisted for the vast majority of my life ever going to a musical. And you may say, how did you know you weren't a musicals fan? But I'm going to stand my ground on that one. So I never went to a musical. And then I went to Hamilton and I took a client to Hamilton. And I was sitting there with sort of about 15 minutes to go next to my quite important client sobbing my eyes out and sort of going, and oh, no, it's, honestly, it's fine. I've just got something in my eye. Honestly, it's absolutely fine. So not a musicals fan, um, but got something in my eye when I watched Hamilton. So I couldn't quite see the end.
1: Well, I love the fact you're a convert. Hamilton is absolutely amazing. And I may have learned most of the lyrics to most of the songs.
2: I've been <laughs> to see it twice and I got something in my eye at the end both times.
1: <laughs> How about
2: the West End or Broadway? So I can't pretend to have ever off regularly been to plays on Broadway but I think the West End is the best in the world how
1: about theatre versus cinema
2: it, that's an easy one for me theatre
1: interesting I wasn't expecting that I thought you might go for cinema
2: i really very rarely watch films I'm very very picky about films
1: oh well Kwame is gonna love that answer <laughs> let's go to the episode
2: Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative Group. Leadership is difficult but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by the playwright and director Kwame Kwayama. He's currently the artistic director of the Young Vic Theatre, where he's directed plays including Twelfth Night and Tree. Previously, he was the artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage and the associate director of the Donmore Warehouse, where he directed the Olivier-nominated play One Night in Miami. He's a prolific playwright, won myriad of awards, sat on the boards of theatres including The National, got an OBE for his services to drama and even directed the opening ceremony of Senegal's Senghor National Stadium. Kwame Kweama, welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's fun to be here. So we're going to kick things off as, as we always do with our quick fire round. Just to get us going.
3: So in three words, describe your leadership style. I want to say no bullshit, right? But um, (laughs) I'd say um, I attempt to be inclusive, dynamic and soulful. Great. I love all three of those. And if you could delete
2: any word from the business bullshit jargon dictionary, what would it be? KPI. KPI. (laughs) Yep.
3: Yep. And which leader do you most admire? Modern, past? That's very interesting because I I came into management because a friend of mine once said, you know, our heroes are Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey. And actually, they were external leaders of organizations, but not necessarily inside of organizations creating change. And that maybe, maybe the baton is 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 that my generation was to move inside and revolutionise from the inside. So it's really hard to answer that question, because in truth, I don't really have a kind of business role model. I really admire Oscar Eustace, who runs the Public Theatre in New York, a theatre that I've worked with a lot. And I really admire uh, an artistic director called Hannah Sharif who runs the Repertory Theater in St. Louis again in America just because there's no bullshit to her leadership. It's just eyes forward and just bring the change through. And and those are the kind of managers or or people that inspire me. Fantastic. Well, we'll I'm sure get into some of that as as we go along. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? One year in the mind of an artistic director is three years in the real world. Therefore, be patient. Given that, what what has the last one year felt like? That must be 30 (laughs) years. (laughs) Uh, A lifetime? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, for real. What's the best decision you've ever made? To hire Hana Sharif as my associate artistic director at Baltimore Center Stage.
2: And I think our listeners' favourite question, I'm not sure whether it's our guests' favourite question uh, for for last, what's the worst decision you've ever made?
3: Oh. I I think we all make many, right? And and I'm sorry, you said quickfire, so I should be prepared for it. It's interesting. I often think about what is probably the most dangerous decision that I've made. I tend to eject out of my brain um, failures. And so really, I think the worst decision that I ever made is I was in a situation where I wanted to impress a peer. And a question came to me, which was, when should I meet a a writer? And my instinct was, let's do it now. We should do it now. And that person said, the peer said, no, 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 let's not do it. And although my instinct and everything in me said, no, we really should. I made the decision possibly to, to try and impress is even the wrong word, but to try and equalize our relationship. And I kind of went, yeah, great. I'll follow whatever you say. And it came back to bite me in the ass Really, really, really hard.
2: Wow, that's a great answer. I I also, by the way, I do, I, I think I now prefer the question, what's the most dangerous decision you've ever made? I think <laughs> That's a far, far, far better question. So thank you. So let's get, let's get into it a bit then. So uh, I think these days, maybe we're coming to the end of this point, but these days it's still the case that we almost always have to start every conversation with, by asking about COVID. But we've all had a tough year, I think, but the theatre and the arts have been hit particularly hard. How have you, how have you managed to lead your organisation through such a tumultuous, maybe even existential crisis?
3: yeah you're right you're right you're right it, it it did feel and does feel almost existential and and I I also think it's really easy to answer that question from a leadership position when really the, the the people who should answer that are the people that that you've been leading yeah but what I'll try and articulate is has been my philosophy what's my philosophy been throughout this and my philosophy has been, my parents are of West Indian extraction, um, and so uh, there is a saying that my father and my mother would often say, which is "pump the brakes." And it, and at one point, so if ever I was making a decision too quickly, or or I was trying to race through my homework, or trying to be like, hey, 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 look, pump the brakes, pump the brakes, slow down. And I think I've tried to do that throughout this crisis, which is understandably many people and uh, many leaders have tried to fill the void, have gone, we've got to do something now. Theatre's not open and we're closed and let's... And I've tried to actually just go, no, I'm just gonna be steady. I'm not very good with groupthink. And the moment that groupthink says, let's do X, I lean away from that. Yes.
2: I'm the same. Not, not always to my benefit, but as
3: I, have yeah, to, always, I have to right? catch myself.
2: But I agree with you. As soon as I'm told what everybody else
3: thinks, I think, do they really? Why? Why? I'm really bad with that. I'm really, really bad. So I think really how I've tried to manage this is to kind of just um, be as steady as possible. Be as cognizant of the mental health of the organisation and be cognizant of our financial health. I have a brilliant board and board chair. And so I know that I can always refer and seldom defer, but I can refer to them and think about whether I'm I'm making the right decision in not acting. So in truth, I have been leading the organization by doing a lot of advocacy at the government level. I've been doing a lot of advocacy in terms of looking after the emotional health of our sector by doing many interviews and and podcasts and and webinars and 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 also to myself, not inhaling any of the news that I'm given. I take it. I go, okay. so we're due to open on blah, blah, blah. Let's continue to plan in case that happens. But let's prepare ourselves in case that doesn't.
2: You made, made a really interesting point about maybe maybe the people that that I should ask that question of, you know, of, of, of us all, by the way, but in, in, in your case, the people you've been leading. I mean, I think it's a great point. How have you gone about doing that in practice? Is that something that you've said, OK, maybe I do need to find different ways to check in with people?
3: Yeah, I tried three or four or five or six <laughs> different methods. You know, I, I, I tried to do in our company meetings. I try and spend time just going, look, everybody tell me how you're feeling and I'll start with me. And then we 'll try and cater some of our decisions, particularly as we had to slightly downsize to what we had to kind of let people know where we were, particularly after we had just come through the summer of racial reckoning and we are had and an understanding that our sector, like all sectors, was institutionally racist and systemically racist um, and 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 just because a black man was leading the organization it didn 't mean that somehow we were free of that it 's been emotionally quite hard. And that what that's meant is that we've had to check in quite often. And most importantly, for me, I've had to understand of myself when I can lead and when I'm actually not in the mental health position or the emotional position to lead vis-a-vis certain subjects. What does it mean to be an artistic director?
2: I mean, most of us are used to seeing the magic on the stage, but we we have a little idea what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, can, you, can you talk us through what what, they, what yeah. it means to you, I suppose?
3: The overarching thing is that you're a curator and, and and you're curating plays so that your art can be of service to your community, stroke communities. And however you want to define those communities, Um, or uh, for me, my community, my immediate community is Lambeth and Southwark. That's where the Young Vic Theatre is on the cut there. Then there is the interlocking community of the London theatre goer. And then there is the further interlocking community of the British theatre goer. And then there is what are the social aims and goals of the art that we put in? What are the entertainment goals and who do we attract and bring into the building through those templates? So really the job of the artistic director is to meet the audience where they are and gently introduce them to things that they may not have known that they wanted and incrementally bring them towards that ecstatic place. Your point about the, the,
2: the digital revolution, do you think that that has a real possibility to expand and change some of those communities as well?
3: Oh yeah totally I mean even if we think about uh, about the D disabled community they've had access to some quality theater that they may not have had during lockdown simply because so many theaters are giving them access through the internet so we know that there are certainly some specific communities that have benefited already and I, I think I look at the digital revolution through the terms of access I don't want to I don't want to d- deprive anybody of the ability to come to the young Vic and see a show in 3d but if you're in Dundee for instance you may not be able to get down to see the show that that we've got on that's so great. But if maybe once or twice during the run, I give you access to that show in a way, again, that doesn't destroy the sense of people wanting to go to theatre. But if I'm in Albuquerque and I've heard that the Young Vic is a world-class institution, there's a play there that I want to see, I go, oh, cool, I can access it. And so... That's really the function, I think. Number one, access. And number two, the act of demystifying. The demystification of our rather opaque art form and certainly the way that we produce. I think digital is going to be a brilliant way of of breaking that down a little. And, and if I may add, so for instance, this week, I have a lighting designer, who's a very well-established lighting designer, who's shadowing me. Through every meeting that I have via Zoom, that's about going. Okay, so you should understand how the system works. She asked, "Which would you know? Uh, I, I want to know how how the sausage is made." I say, "Come in, come into my Zooms," and all of a sudden, the digital manifestation of that allows her to have access. In in your roles as Autistic
2: director in in Baltimore and now at the Young Vic, you took over. You took over, in both cases, you took over from people who'd been in the roles for 18, 19 years, like nearly two decades. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, that's a long time. And I guess also, by the way, presumably had fabulous sort of legacies and incredible achievements of their own in both cases. But, but how do you usher in, how do you bring yourself to that? I mean, how do you bring in your own sense of change into,
3: into, into roles in that situation? I I think that's a brilliant question. And I was just speaking to a a mentee about that actually earlier on today. And ultimately uh, the young Vic for example, uh, David Lan, a magnificent artistic director. And, and once, uh, you know, once I got the gig, like literally every play as was before was five stars and transferring to Broadway and, and, and the West end, you know, I was a bit like Bruh, can you not just fail once I've got something to stand on. And, and, But actually, and I nearly didn't apply, not because of that, but because I was a bit like, David, I think you're doing everything that I'd want to do with a theatre. And he said something brilliant to me. He said, you know, yes, Kwame, our values may align, but I bet if I went into your house, the art on your wall is different to the art on mine. And once he said that, I went, oh, that's really clear. Because your job is to make the four walls, i.e. the art, reflect who you are. Let the ball land at your right foot. And so organizationally, that's what's really important to me. I often say that I am not the colored version of the thing that went before me. And so, if I inherited a, 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 a system that very much was of the personality and the culture of those who went before, that I might say white Western European, um, that mine, which is a tricultural African man born in Britain, but claims his Ghanaian and his Caribbean roots, that I would say that all of a sudden that becomes the art that's on my wall, the sense of universality through my specific lens. And so, organizationally, uh, you know, I, I, I came in. And 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 asked those who wished to put my art up on the wall, through the lens of service, will you stay? And those who may not respond to my art, which is absolutely valid, that that maybe make room for those who might. It's a great way of
2: thinking about it. Do you, do you think that requires? Uh, I don't quite know how to phrase this. Do you think that requires a degree of vulnerability? Uh, because you're talking about yourself in in, in a sense. In that you're you you know you're talking about your walls, your house, you, your art, you. you. Do, does that require you to be or feel even vulnerable in doing that, or or, or maybe opposite? Do you need a degree of self confidence to to be able
3: to do that? Do you think? I I, I would describe acting like this and all art. Mm as the act of standing in front of someone you really fancy, stark naked, and saying, do you like what you see? <laughs> yeah. And then every, every applause, every chuckle, every ovation puts another piece of clothes on you so that eventually, even though you're standing naked before an audience, You feel as if you have on a fur coat. That that confidence, even though you are naked over and over again, you don't see your own nakedness. And that is what it is, I think, to be an artist full stop. You are not the boss, the ultimate boss, no matter how many accolades you have. The ultimate boss is the audience. The ultimate boss is the person looking at your body and looking at your One's me slightly ratoned stomach. I say slightly, even underplaying it, and going, "Oh, it's all right, isn't it?" And, yeah, and not worry. You know, it's it's an act of nakedness. Leadership is nakedness. No, mm. oh, yeah, I
2: really I really like that. So let's go back to the beginning. Growing up, you wanted to be a singer songwriter, uh, and your mum wanted yeah. you to be a lawyer. Theatre doesn't seem like a compromise between those two positions. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: You know, I, I, I love the way that you framed that. My mother, of course, like every good immigrant, wants their children to go into what were then the safe professions. But actually, my mother wanted me to go into into law as opposed to maybe accountancy, and that's not no no slight on accountancy because she wanted me to be a lawyer for social justice. Of course, we didn't call it that then, you know, you know, but, but, but human rights. And in particular, because being born black in Britain, um, and particularly at that time, and, and it still is now, um, it was a very, very cold country and an extremely overtly racist country, and, and we faced much discrimination. And so my mother actually raised us all to want to use whatever natural skills we have to serve. And so actually, it wasn't until. A good few years into my playwriting um, life, when my mother walked into a a theatre with me and and she saw one of my plays and she could see the effect that it was having on people. That that she fully understood, not understood, that she fully appreciated that my way of serving was not through the law. My way of serving um, in specificity, the community that I came from but in generally anyone who wanted to come in and partake was through the application of heart through art.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from start or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
2: Uh, well, those of us who are old enough will remember and many of those who aren't old enough will know about uh, the Southall race riots in the late 70s, early early 80s. I, I yeah. think. Um, so what impact did that have on you at the time? Um, and, and I guess how did, that, how did you then take that through into your, into your work later and, and indeed now? I, I think
3: that's a really good question. I, I, I think my brother reminded me of something the other day, which I had forgotten. During the South or riot stroke uprisings, or however one w- wishes to characterize it, um we were like eleven twelve and we snuck out of the house and we walked up we were walking probably about i don't know five hundred yards away from our home on the high road, and there was a blue line, and uh, no one had walked past the blue line, and we wanted to see what was going on because we're kids right. <laughs> And we walked up to the blue line and the blue line parted so that we could walk through and then others followed. And then we got to another blue line, but this time it was blue line with um, barriers and the national front who were having a, a demonstration or a town hall meeting in at Southwold town hall, they were approaching. And, and so we wanted to, we wanted to see who the enemy were quote unquote. And so we kind of went through the barriers. <laughs> and, right now i wouldn't do that now when, when he was reminding me and i remember i was like well we crazy we could have been arrested we could have been anything but but that restless curiosity to understand and to see up close how human beings negotiate the environment they find themselves in the white working class feeling at that point or some members of the white working class feeling that the only way they could reclaim the space was to fight against what they saw as the new wave of immigrants that had come in. Was to push back that that's where their power sat. The, the way that those who were around us, the black and the brown, who were saying we we, we need to stand up to this. Um, was again a restless curiosity we had that we wanted to see how the world was being put together, and I think that that has moved into my into my art, into the advocacy of the art, into the art I wish to produce, and also the way I wish to lead my organization. I lead my organization with a restless curiosity and a kingdom heart. In our country, I find, in Britain in particular, and having led organisations in both Africa and North America, um, I, 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 I sometimes feel qualified to, to say this, that in, that in Britain we have been raised to date, and that probably is changing, um, with a kind of uh, philosophy where often we, we take the clothes off the emperor rather than put them on. And sometimes I found myself in an American in American context saying, "Listen, here's this idea," and I found that the team around me will go, "Great! How do we put clothes on that idea? How do we how do we stop it being naked? How do we make it?" And that sometimes I have found, and, and certainly not the team I have now, that uh, that that sometimes in Britain we pride ourselves on going. Mm, yeah it's not going to work because of that and it's not going to work oh, you know that's why it won't work oh, you know that and kind of pride ourselves in finding the flaw as opposed to the rocket fuel to make it happen
2: how do you create i mean do you have a does it sort of just well up in you and you have something that has to come out no matter what no matter what else you're doing or do you think you know what i'm going to set some time aside now i'm going to give myself a period of time and i'm going to go and i Am going to go and create. I mean, or is it just impossible to characterise?
3: Uh, I, 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 I would say, and, and I think this is in, in the context of this. I, I agreed to doing this, this, this podcast. I'm a bit bored of talking about myself, but I agreed to do it because a, I'd I listened and, and, and I found it fantastic. But, but, but b, the title, no bullshit, right? And uh, and 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 so I'm going to try and give you the no bullshit answer, right? Uh, and, and, and and the no bullshit answer is I don't know. <laughs> it depends on the that day. That's a
2: perfect answer.
3: <laughs> right, right. Uh, what I know I do is I deliberately keep uh, a percentage of my life in chaos. And anytime someone comes in to be my PA or EA, or anybody comes to work closely with me, I go, I just need to let you know that there's about 20% around me that is deliberate chaos. And I keep it that way because that is where I find inspiration.
2: Wow, that's fascinating. So that is not how I could cope at all. So, so what, what, what practice does that mean?
3: You're right. It's not for everyone. And it drives some people absolutely crazy. And it doesn't mean that they're wrong to be driven crazy. It just means that they're not probably the right partner for me. What what it means is that it, it's a, it's a little bit like the difference between improvisation and set text. That, that when you're on set of a movie, the director invariably goes, so look, here's the set text. Let's go. And the best actors, they're really in the scene and they... They, they can ad lib and if the uh, if your partner next to you is rigid and says oh but that's not what's in the script the scene dies but if your scene partner goes i'm in and i know where you are and we on vibe until one of us decides to jump back in and we'll get to the end then you get movie magic And I'm in the business of trying to leave enough space for improvisation on every single idea, on every exchange. I want us to drill down. And sometimes it means in practical terms, we may have an agenda of five parts and we're in part one until five minutes till the end of the conversation. And, and there's some people going, can't we get onto the others? And I'm like, no, because you know what? I'm, I, I need to keep digging on point number one. And I have found invariably in my life that if you keep digging on, for instance, point one, and you get deep enough, you strike oil and two, three, four, five, and seven actually come to the ground. The oil comes up all around you. That's the chaos I'm talking about, that I, 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 I like to keep it moving. I like to keep it fresh and I like to keep it instinctive. Not all of the time, not for everything. If the show starts at 7.30, I want the show to start at 7.30. I don't want to improvise on that theme, you know, you know. but 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 in general, I try and keep 20% of chaos around me.
2: So you, you told us a story about when you were 12 or 13. So I want to talk about when you were 19, uh, where you changed your name. from Ian Roberts to Kwame Kweama. Talk about that decision.
3: Yeah, do you know what? I've never read my Wiki page, right? And so I really should send someone in because I'm told that it said that I changed my name when I was 19. It's actually, I began when I was 19 and I changed my name when I was 23. But 19 is very significant because 19 is when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I realised that what he was going through in the 1940s, internally and externally, is what I was going through in the 1980s. And I didn't have the language then, but of course it was symptomatic white supremacy that was in play globally. And so of course I was experiencing the same things that he were. And then he pulled my coat, as he would say in the old 1950s expression, to the idea that that I, as someone who was Caribbean, a diasporic African, was carrying the name of someone who once enslaved someone in my family. And I found that to be illegitimate, totally illegitimate, that that someone who oppressed, suppressed, and technically um, called me subhuman or someone in my family subhuman, placed in, a sense of inferiority into our minds where I didn't know my name or my roots or my culture or where I'd come. That seems illegitimate to pass that on to my children. So I went on a genealogical study, took our family back to the slave fort that we came from, my great, great, great grandfather. And then I went to Ghana and then, and then I, I, what they say in the trade is I reclaimed my name.
2: Was that a process of you
3: changing as well as a person, do you think? Well, that's a brilliant question. I think that I absolutely changed once I had done it.
0: Mm.
3: I was really angry between the ages of 19 and 25. uh, I mean, 24 ish. I was, I was so angry. I was so angry at the oppression that, that I had seen in my own life. I was so angry at the oppression that my parents had observed. I was so angry and outraged. And possibly even moments of hate at what white society had historically done to my ancestors. And it's so, it was like magic. Once I had done that act of reclamation, of saying, that will not own me. I will own my own anger if I have it. I cannot let it be owned by someone else. Once I learned to hear my mother's words, which is to hate the sin and not the sinner. I I, I felt that, that a great weight had fallen from my shoulders and I could keep my eyes never forgetting the past, but I could keep my eyes on the North Star of tomorrow.
2: Hmm. That's a fantastic insight. Thank you for sharing that. Obviously, it was uh, the Black Lives Matter protests to last summer. You've, you've already talked a little bit about those. And many organizations, many companies, I think, reviewed, changed, challenged uh, their themselves, their culture, uh, and the change they need to make in their own organizations. Um, I guess some with you know more, more success than others what do, what do you think that leaders should be doing um people in my position and I guess you referenced also people in, in your position so in the arts and more generally in order to 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 make that change I, I guess there's a there's a it's important that we talk about things but ultimately change comes to action and doing that's certainly yes. my, my view what, what advice would you would you
3: have for for leaders you know i've got to say i 'm really bad on advice <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and forgive me, i, I didn 't mean that to sound confrontational it, it 's just that I think it 's really easy to feel that one can give sage advice on things and and actually I, I, I think that uh, that like history is fluid, so are my thoughts you know evolving on a daily basis. I, I would say two things here 's what I did at my organization. we attempted to speak truth to power. We attempted to ask the people who are black, brown and those who had experienced racism, um, a term I I like to use is black and the global majority. Uh, We we asked them of their experiences of working at the theatre, of of experiences of micro, macro aggressions and of what it was to not bring their full self to work for fear of, of being discriminated against. in in whatever fashion they perceived. And I think that was really hard on the organisation. We perceive ourselves, particularly at the Young Vicar, being at the forefront, at the vanguard of equality, of of being, you know, right up there with diversity. And so it was really hard, as you can imagine, also being a black male running an organisation, to hear these tales of pain, these tales of aggression. And then I think my job was simply to then help facilitate... Getting the right people into the organisation, the right external people into the organisation, who could take that listening and create actions, actions that, of course, can be KPI'd. The very thing I said at the beginning that I hate using, right? Um, and and then the second th- or third thing that was important for me was that I, as a black male, removed myself from the day-to-day management of of that. For two reasons. First of all, the bandwidth tax on people who are black and global majority um, to explain themselves to to the global minority is 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 it's really taxing and really hard. And so to be victim to it and then have to explain your pain um, to those who you perceive may have been party to it is a double tax. And I didn't want to during um, COVID, trying to keep a, one's family together and trying to keep the company together. I didn't want to add that tax to me. But in truth, I felt that this was, um, it would be best if white people were speaking to white people on this subject, being facilitated actually through a wonderful group that is black led by it called Sour Lemons. So that was important for me, A, to let the white leadership speak to the organization and speak in ways that you might not speak in front of me. And and that's what was really important. Important is actually all leaders having not the politically correct conversation, not the conversation that goes, oh my God, yeah, we've been wrong. Oh my God, how can we fix it up? And what can we be? But but actually speaking to your own hearts, speaking to your own fears, speaking to your own traumas around race or being called racist, and then trying to create the environment where truth can be spoken and progress can happen. And that's really woolly way of saying, which is why I didn't say that I have advice, but my process has been listen hard and create radical solutions. Given your
2: uh, love of KPIs, which we've, I think now is da- we've now well and truly established, uh, um, I'm not sure. I've got a feeling where you're going to stand on this, but I'm not completely clear. Where do you stand on diversity quotas or, or quotas generally?
3: I, I'm for it. I I'm, I'm, I'm for it all the way. Um, I, 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 I see no reason. Um, I, you know, I think we have to be really mindful. Of course, we do of fragilities, um, we had to be, and we have to look after people, you know. It doesn't matter how privileged one is. You know, we all f- think and feel that that we worked really hard to get here and and that it's kind of down to me. And that if the pie is smaller, then my success may be smaller. And, and so I think we have to look after Fragilities, but we also have to not let those fragilities get in the way of evolutionary, aggressive quantum leaps. And ultimately we're serving ourselves. I don't want my grandson having the same discussion that I had. I just don't want it. And the only way we're going to do that is to make quantum leaps in terms of diversity. And let me just put this a little bit in perspective in the way that I think. For every white pound, the African Caribbean community has 20 pence and the African community 10 pence. That should tell you how many quantum leaps we need to get to before we're in a world of equality. You can't get there with small incremental acts, not in our lifetime. The the same economic disparity in the United States. Um, I think for every white dollar, there is something like two cents in the black community. In order to get parity, apparently it would take over 234 years. We ain't got that time. And so we, while we have to be very mindful, as I've said, about the notion of people feeling that they are losing something, we also have to make huge quantum leaps to 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 allow ourselves at, within a, a, a shooting chance of of social and economic equity.
0: Hmm.
2: I couldn't agree more, and that that's that's the approach that that we've taken at, at Havas. Um, um, which which does end up we don't call them KPIs but but it, it does it, it does end up with it ends up with some numbers yeah
3: yeah and you know what again I want to be real clear I'm jesting with KPIs you know what we we're, we we only really know how far we've travelled when we have some measuring tool
2: you do you have to you have to we just have to I think and you have to actually understand your start point very clearly um, yeah. And then you have to say, this is what we're going to try and achieve. And this is when we're going to try and achieve it by. And, uh, and, and you know, you, you, that's, that's the only way of knowing whether the things you're trying, um, are, are working. Yeah. And some things will work and some things won't. Some stuff yeah. doesn't, some stuff doesn't. Um, correct. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, no, that, that's kind of why I think it is important that people. Talk and say things. And it's, it's really important. I mean, communication is critical, but communication needs to be accompanied by, and here's the stuff we're going to go and do. And I think when you get those two right, that's the you know absolutely that's the word, that's the holy grail it? yeah that's the holy grail so looking back on your well so i was reading this question now and it suddenly makes it sound like you're about to retire so i apologize about what <laughs> <laughs> so, so <laughs> i'm, I'm going to out this question so uh looking back from the
3: midpoint uh, of your career uh, what what are you most proud of somebody said something to me the other day and i found it very very interesting they said you know do you they asked me a question they said do you talk to yourself and what we all do don't we at some point. And then I said, "And do you ever say anything nice to yourself? <laughs> mm, I think that's a really interesting question. And, and and the answer was very, very rarely. And so it was, oh, why did you do that? Oh, that was, it's always a chastisement or mostly a chastisement. And seldom, if ever, can I remember that I went, oh, well done, Quams. Oh, that was good. And so I've actively been trying to make sure that I keep in my mind the, the positives as I as I deal with um, a world that, that, you know, where negativities come thick and fast. And so that was a really long way of saying um, the thing I'm most proud about was directing the opening ceremony of the Festival of Black Arts and Culture in Senegal in the Senghor Stadium. And the reason I say that is because it was like the Olympics. it was a cast of five hundred. it was uh, I, I'd written a piece of uh, of dance theater and we uh, you know and it was against a massive projection screen it was and uh you know that took up half the stadium and And there was something about writing a piece that was about African civilization from the birth to the then present, and hearing people. 60,000 people scream at, or shout or applaud at, at, at a moment of the art that you've created, that was simply um, amazing. But it was doubly amazing because, not for the ego of that, but because the largest thing I directed before that was five people on the stage of the then Tricycle Theatre. And when they asked me to do the job, I thought they were joking. I thought they were just asking me to represent Britain, not to be the artistic director of this whole thing that included 52 countries from across the world and I and and that I had the stupidity and bravery to go, "No, the process that I use for those five actors, I can use for the 500." Hmm. And 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 to see that through amid many people having doubts, that the organizers giving me their support when I got to the end of the show um i I just gave thanks and um and it and knew that it would stay with me for the rest of my life
2: If you could go back to the beginning uh of your career uh what advice would you give your younger self because I know you don't like giving advice, but surely to yourself it's okay
3: I would whisper i think two things. One into my younger self's left ear and the other to the right ear. And the one I would say that I would whisper into the left ear is, it's going to be okay. You're going to be all right. And I would say that maybe six or seven times. Just so that, just so that he could be in no doubt. And then in the right ear, I would whisper there are a thousand reasons why you may not get a job. Just don't let your art be one of them.
2: That's an absolutely fantastic answer. I think that's a great point uh, to leave it on. Thank you so much. Kwame Kwame, it's been absolutely inspirational talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and wonderful to meet you.
3: My absolute pleasure. Anything that's got no bullshit in it has got my vote.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. I'll put that on the cover of the next book. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think, and your review will help others find the show. I'm Chris Hurst, and this is the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. The executive producer is Farah Jassat.